the Science Inside podcast. This is the Science Inside. Hello and welcome to the Science Inside, where we bring you the latest news, stories and events happening in the world of science and technology. Of course, I am Bridget Leper, and this evening we are talking about a really interesting and exciting topic, which is big data or big data some people might might call it but we are trying to make sense of what it means to us all data is the new oil well at least according to uh, data scientists it is the reasons the reason why computers can see better than humans be able to read road signs and diagnose cancer earlier and way faster than we may have ever been able to but what is big data you may ask. Frankly speaking, it is the fuel behind the fourth industrial revolution speed train taking the tech world by storm. It is the reason why today we are, un- we are able to speak about machine learning, artificial intelligence, deep learning and so forth. And if we look at how far we've come along with this kind of technology, it is basically becoming the first um, Well, it is fast becoming the backbone of every industry in business, in medicine, literally our entire global economy. And scientists and professionals are soon realizing that it is in the processing and making sense of this data that is uh, key in making it really meaningful to each and every one of these industries that I have uh, mentioned, regardless of the scale, shape or form. Well, we will hear uh, more a bit bit more on this later on uh, in... In, in the show, but um, we have on on unscience this week. Uh, we find out from Masichaba Kanya about why people with an extra finger or two or a couple more toes are more likely to do way more than uh, the regular ten fingered people like you and I. And then we we dig deeper into the subject matter of big data. We find out how academia business can be assisted with the aid of big data but right now we go into the latest news with Masibulele Lunika what's up Masibulele good evening I'm Masibulele Lunika in your news making headlines this this week uh, UJ research shows that social grants prevent children from becoming obese while in the second story society's standards are responsible for sabotaging young girls interest in maths and science Children on social grants are believed to go to school earlier and are likely to be obese, according to a research study carried out by the University of Johannesburg. The research based its knowledge on a study that was carried out in 2017 that revealed that children of parents who are receivers of the child support grant are less likely to be overweight or suffer from obesity. The study added that they are also more likely to attend preschool than those uh, whose households that are not uh, social grant beneficiary, beneficiaries. rather Early envir- envir- enrollment in education and, ob- and obesity are both South Africa's big uh, challenges and as a result, uh, the, p- the positive impact of South Africa's child support grant is presented as one of the ways to overcome this challenge, according to the researchers Janita Chiba and Jacqueline Moodley. 
The study focuses on children aged 5 to 14 years old as key findings of how children who received the child support grant managed in comparison to those who didn't receive the grant. South Africa's child support grant is the country's most successful poverty-improving intervention where almost 12 million children live with caregivers who receive 380 rand a month to meet basic needs such as access to health care, education and adequate standard of living. According to the Child Gauge Report 2018, over 6 million children in South Africa still live below the poverty line. To, to, to determine the positive effects of South Africa's social grants, the study looked at two measures among children whose caregivers received the grant in relation to those health in the form of body mass index, BMI in short, and their enrollment in education. BMI is the measure of body fat based on weight in relation to height. It can also be used as an indicator of obesity, a growing problem in many parts of the world, including South Africa. It was found then that children whose caregivers received the grant were more likely to have a normal BMI than those who didn't and therefore less likely to be overweight or obese. This also meant that their caregivers were more likely to enroll them in pre-primary schools than those not receiving the grant. This adds to the body of knowledge showing that the grant enables caregivers to make healthier foods, food choices and provide children with the caregivers with a means to send their children to school earlier. But obesity is not the only indicator of overeating. It can also be triggered by eating food that has poor nutritional value and is high in fats and sugar. The study shows that 9% of children who received the child support grant were obese compared to 12% who did not. Data analyzed and collected as part of the National Income Dynamics Survey in a government-funded study that's repeated every two or three years presented that in addition to the child support grant, other factors such as water and electricity were also linked to the early educational enrollment and better child health also influence children's development. Science, technology and engineering and mathematics, STEM, uh, in short, are vital career pathways or pathways rather of the future. However, STEM is often not the chosen pathway for minorities and girls. According to meteorologist and professor at the University of Georgia's Department of Geography and the director of the university's atmospheric science program, Marshall Shepard, uh, many minorities avoid science because of cultural perceptions about what is considered a successful career. Recently, Assistant Professor of Mathematics and Science Education at Vanderbilt University, Dr. Nicole Joseph, delivered a a thought-provoking lecture at the University of Georgia called Navigating STEM. This inspired Shepard to explore five reasons five reasons rather um, girls avoid entry in stem related fields according to him these include imaginary imagery sorry um, self-fulfillment prophecy lack of mentors having to prove something and conveying the value of stem in explanation imagery has directly to do with sexism and this can be seen when doing particular searches online whose results reinforce anti uh, um, and antiquated uh, notions of gender rules this first reason directly leads to the second where the imagery can have 
unintended consequences of leading to self-fulfilling prophecy. The third is lack of mentors and sufficient role models, while the third, uh, the fourth is a constant feeling of having something to prove. And lastly, many girls, particularly those from man- marginalized groups, may not see the value of STEM or frankly may not have pressing concerns. According to America's National Science Board and the National Science Foundation, a website the percentage of a female science and engineering se workers continue to be the lowest in engineering according to unesco statistics only 23 percent of stem talent globally is female this lack of women in industry is mirrored in south africa recapping your top stories this hour uj shows that child social grants prevent children from becoming obese and society's standards are responsible for sabotaging young girls' interest in maths and science. This week's news was sourced from Pyron24, Forbes and IT News Africa. Wow, thank you for the the news. Uh, I think it was really interesting news uh, for this week. What do you think? I mean, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the the child su- support grant. Um, yeah, we had topic. a similar discussion earlier when we actually discussed how um, uh, children who actually grow up in uh, child who grow up in child uh, uh, in deprived, sorry, underprivileged households uh, uh, and in usually it's the townships, they tend to have uh, less reasons to stay in the house and they, they play video games and all sorts of things like that, so they go out more and they play, they're more active, so this actually reduces chances of them you know um, uh, uh, get, getting obese and gaining weight because they, they're quite active than, than the yeah, they go out and play more. And yeah. I think it's it, it's great for, for their upgri- upbringing. Okay, thank you for that update. Uh, I think that was really uh, interesting news. And I mean, really, that is why we also try on the Science Insights to bring more female um, scientists on the show so that, you know, young children, young people out there can get to know about the various sciences and science fields and industries that are out there and that they should also get involved. But um, that is where we leave uh, this week's news bulletins. But we are going to be unpacking big data and what it means to all of us in the simplest terms. Please stay tuned. We come back with that story after the break. This is the Science Inside. Welcome back. You're still with the Science Inside. And today we are speaking about big data analytics. And we are speaking to um, big data analytics and computer science professor Terence Fanzal from the School of Computer Science and Applied Mathematics here at the Witwatersrand University. He has interest in data science research and anomaly detection, predictive analytics, machine learning, and data intensive computing that deals with um, that deals with spatial and temporal big data challenges he will be giving us insights into what the world is Im- what the world is merging into and what the possibilities are with regards to disruptive technologies that are fast changing the world that we are living in today good evening dr terence fanzal thank you for joining us on the science inside And I'd like to say I really appreciate you coming into our studios today and I'm hoping to learn a lot from you. But um, I'm going to start off the interview by 
basically asking you what is the use of a data management tool i'd like to understand what kind of tools are being used to manage all of this data that comes through there's a number of initiatives within government that try to deal with these large amounts of data and one of the custodians or trying to push forward this area of research has been the csir on behalf of department of science and technology on behalf of the nrf Um, So what they've been doing over there is um, trying to put in place uh, what's known as cyber infrastructure. And this takes on the form of like large amounts of computing power, but also large amounts of data storage. And the third very important thing is large amounts of data communication. So that's the networking side, the ability to move this data around from universities to government organizations and to industry. And so these are the three major components that they have, the big computing, the large amount of data storage, a place to store it, and the ability to move it around very quickly using networking. But now there's a term that has been loosely thrown around very often that we hear about big data. What is big data? Is it just large amounts of data? Is it something new? Is it something we should be really concerned about? What is it? I think to understand big data, maybe we people should, well, do we ask the question, what was small data? Um, So originally, uh, when we collected data, we collected it for slightly different reasons. One of them was someone would set up a scientific experiment, and then as part of that scientific experiment, they would do some observations and they would collect a certain amount of data. And um, that could be, you know, orders of maybe 30 or 40 or even hundreds um, of records that might have been collected. But over time, we've increasingly been able to collect larger and larger amounts of data. The word big data really arose out of the fact that we noticed that once humans became first-class citizens on the internet, so they weren't just consuming content from the internet, but they were actually starting to put content onto the internet. And it wasn't just multimedia they were placing there, they were actually putting content about themselves. So they were saying things about themselves, they were putting clicks on, um, they were saying what they liked. And so humans now became part of the data problem. They were producing massive amounts of data, video, et cetera, et cetera. Hmm. And um, it was when this started to happen that we started to see that there was a shift in the type of tools that we would need to be able to deal with this large amount of data. Largely, we characterize it in three ways, and you can see that those three ways that we characterize this big data come from the nature of of humans. So the first one is the easiest part, which we just think about volume. So there's a large volume of data. There's just a massive amount of it. Um, The second one that we talk about is the velocity of the data. Um, And this is because humans are putting more and more data on very, very quickly, but they also want access to that data fast. For instance, if I tweet something, someone else wants to read it almost instantaneously. We don't want to have to wait days for us to receive that information. So there's this velocity component. It needs to be near real time, we say. Um, And then the third component of this is variety, and that talks to the nature of how humans interact with the internet. Traditionally, when we collected data, we did it in a very controlled way. We would read a measurement, like for instance, the temperature, and we'd have this very precise value. Um, But the way humans put uh, data or information onto the internet is in free form. It's spoken, it's video, it's images, it's text. Multimedia. Yeah, and it's also very noisy. So, you know, bad spelling, bad pronunciation, 
Um, sometimes it's well shot, sometimes it's not. So there's a lot of this kind of content. So that talks to the variety problem. So we've got this very large amount of data. Mm-hmm. Um, it's coming on to the internet very, very rapidly. And it's coming on in a large number of different ways in terms of the variety of ways that it's coming on. And that really characterizes the big data challenge as we're talking about it right now is that we're trying to deal with all of this different ways the data is coming on board and having to come up with new tools for processing that. Okay, so from what you're saying and what I, I can gather is that you're saying this is bad data, so the low quality data? I'm not saying it's bad data in in that, you know, there's something terrible about it. What I'm saying is it's difficult for us as computer scientists to extract the information out of it. Think of like a page with printed writing on it and a page with freeform handwriting on it. If you've got something printed on a page, it's always clear and precise. You can read exactly what's been printed on that page. But if you let people just write with their handwriting on pages and try to read off it, Although the information there is still of a good quality, it's a lot more difficult to extract it off the page. Sure. And that's the difference. So the moment we let humans start putting stuff onto the internet, it was going to become more like handwriting than nice, clear, printed characters, which is a bit easier for us to work with in computer science. Another thing that you mentioned is the large volumes of this data that goes through. But as a consumer, one thing that I am concerned about is the kind of data that we are producing on a daily basis. Firstly, where is all of this data being stored? And secondly, how safe is this data that I am putting across as a consumer? How safe is my my information? I think that's a very broad question. I think it comes down to the companies involved. Mm -hmm. Um, For instance, if we had to take like the big telecoms companies um, and you were putting data onto your mobile device and it was moving through there, I think they're well legislated. The only time anyone's going to get hold of that data would probably be um, some sort of a court order or something. So that would be the kind of level to get access to that. Um, On the other hand, you might, for instance, decide to use Facebook or Google or something like that. Those are companies that are outside of South Africa. Mm -hmm. Everything that you're sending there is subject to their own terms and conditions of use. You probably haven't read those terms and conditions of use. You're assuming that they will protect your privacy, but they haven't given you such a guarantee necessarily. So in, in that respect, I think it does come down to, to the company you're working with. I would say that there's been a lot more kickback internationally in terms of what constitutes protecting somebody's privacy. There's a lot more legislation internationally, especially Europe. Um, and South Africa is also quite um, advanced in the space. We, we've got a number of efforts around like our Poppy Act and stuff like that are really trying to understand how do we protect our citizens' data and ensure that um, their privacy is not being violated in some. Is there a possibility of you building a machine that will be so smart that it could actually outsmart you and bypass some uh, rules and regulations that you set for it? Sure, that's a tough question. So part of the reason a lot of us get into this field is because we believe it's possible. And many of us actually want it to be possible. And we're trying to push that boundary. We're trying to understand um, what is intelligence. Whether it can surpass humans is also a tricky one because it comes down to whether is the human brain the pinnacle of this? 
is it as far as it goes? If the human brain's not the pinnacle of it, can we add technology in some way to humans that make us smarter? And it's definitely the case that just on the periphery, we're starting to see that the technology around us make us at least seem smarter. I mean, your mobile phone gives you access to so much information all the time, it's at your fingertips. And that could maybe be integrated in different ways into humans. But it might be the case, and, and that's definitely something we don't know, that the AI that we invent that works on silicone, so we say that would be silicone-based built on a computer, that it has more capability than what they call wetware, which is living cells and stuff like that that's in our brain. At this point, the gap between these two is immense. The human capability is light years ahead of where AI and data science is right now. Sure. Um, just in simple things like being able to tie shoelaces, the capability of, of a human child to learn, um, even for an adult to very, very rapidly learn something new from someone else is immense compared to the amount of effort that we put into getting computers to do relatively simple tasks, like probably from about two or three years old, a child will be able to tell you that that's a dog and a cat and stuff like that. And that's kind of, you know, we sit and say, can we train this thing to identify cats? I think there's quite a big gap between the two. But whether that gap can be closed, I think most people in computer science, especially in artificial intelligence, are hoping that it can. Will it go past us? That's something we don't know. It's still something we have to find out, partly because we also don't know what makes humans intelligent. And, and I mean, that's a whole other field of neuroscience and stuff like that. But we don't even understand our own capabilities, so it's very difficult for us to determine whether something we're building is going to go past what we are. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Terence Fanzel. We appreciate you coming and being with us here on The Science Inside. Thank you. This is the Science Inside. Well, there was Terence Fanzal from the School of Computer Science and Applied Mathematics here at Wits University. But now it's time for Unscience, and this is the the segment where we look at the stranger side side of research and science. And this week, we found out more about people who live with a condition called polyductile and how they are able to perform more functions with their hands or with their feet. And today's Unscience was produced by Masichaba Kanyapa. Stay curious. Stay informed stay on the science inside so polydactyly? so polydactyly is an extraordinary condition where someone is born with one or more extra hands or toes so it is when a person has more than five fingers or toes also known as hyperdactyly it is a congenital congenital physical abnormality in humans and animals resulting in supernumerary fingers or toes. It can be caused by the presence of an autosomal dominant trait, which is a gene that is not related to the chromosome that determines gender. It is therefore, it therefore affects both boys and girls equally. The health research funding statistics mentioned that African-American children are more likely to have polydactyly on the little finger side of the hand, when Asians and Caucasians are more likely to have it on their thumb side. It is a condition that is more frequent in native Africans living in the eastern and central than Caucasians and Mongoloids. Say what? What do you think, Bridget? 
never mind what I think. This is really mind blowing. I mean, why does it affect black people more more than other ethnic groups? Well, the vast majority of occurrences of polydactyly are sporadic, meaning that the condition occurs without an apparent cause. But some may be due to the genetic defect or underlying hereditary syndrome. So African Americans are more likely to be to inherit the condition than the other ethnic groups. In contrast, polydactyly seen in white children is usually syndromic and associated with autosomal recessive transmission. Other interesting facts about this disorder is that families that have children born with this condition are often concerned with what the next steps are going to be because it is a heritable trait. If both parents are, bo- are polydactyls, then the, the likelihood of their children being affected is 75% according to the health research funding statistics. In the world today, about 250,000 children are born with the same form of polydactyly. No. Oh, wow. I actually, come to think of this, I actually have a friend who has, she's Asian. Well, mm. let me not say Asian. She's actually Indian, right? But yeah. she falls in that category of uh, where you said they have um, an extra finger on the left, uh, on the thumb, mm. you said. Yeah, so she does have a, a little finger on her thumb. So she, have, she has 11 fingers. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, but how many people are actually affected by um, by by this or actually carry this this gene? Oh well, before I even go into that, this actually reminds me of the deceased South African gospel musician Swisonwane, who had the same condition. He had a total of twelve hands and uh, hands. Fingers. Fingers. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it is said that one in 143 live births in African and African Americans are expected to have polydactyly, whereas the condition has an occurrence of one in 500 live births. Wow, but I actually didn't think this was a disorder. I know it's a condition, but a disorder, isn't that pushing it a bit? Yeah, I also think so. Neither did I. (laughs) But here's another thing. Do you think having an extra finger or toe helps with performance? Sure, I'd like to think so. Like maybe it helps if you are going to be climbing a tree or or maybe you're (laughs) going to climb a wall and you are bare bare feet. So I think, uh, I mean, more, uh, you know, appendices to grip onto surfaces. Yeah. Well, apparently the new research from University of Freiburg Imperial College London, the University of Hospital Lucerne and EPFL shows that an extra finger can significantly extend the manipulation of abilities and skills, meaning the congenital additional finger brings more to advantages. Mm, it would be really interesting to actually find out how else they can have an advantage over people with 10 toes or just 10 fingers. Yes, exactly. Well, the results also demonstrate that it enables people with six fingers to perform movements with one hand where people with five fingers like us would need two hands so the increased motor abilities observed in the polydactyly subjects are made possible by dedicated areas in the sensory motor brain areas which involves both sensory and motor functions so by sensory and motor functions you actually mean the signals that are sent from parts of our bodies to the brain exactly yes this 
So in the case of the two examined subjects, an additional finger between the thumb and forefinger was fully formed on each hand. And Prof. Dr. Karsten Mering from University of Freiburg and his team of researchers wanted to find out if the subjects have more motor skills that go beyond people with five fingers and how the brain is able to control the additional degrees of freedom. You put your left hand in, you put your left hand out, you put your left hand in and shake it all about. So to find out the extent of their abilities, the researchers had the subjects perform several behavioral experiments and their brain activity was monitored using functional magnetic resonance imaging, which measures brain activity by detecting changes associated with blood flow. That's really unbelievable. Yeah. Are those fingers capable of moving on their own though? <laughs> Let me tell you more. The results show that the subjects, extra fingers are moved by their own muscles separate from five normal ones. It allows the subjects to move their extra fingers as far as possible independently, independently from all the other fingers, either alone or together with the five fingers. However, some people prefer living with the extra finger by removing it just to fit in society in terms of being normal or just by simply because they don't feel comfortable with it being there. So the little finger with no bone can be easily treated at birth by trying to stitch it around with the causes which causes the blood circulation to be cut off and the supernumerary finger falls off after a while. So that is it from me. It is unusual, unlikely and science. Unusual, unlikely, unscience. Recapping what we covered on the Science Inside tonight, we found out from big data analyst and computer scientist Professor Terence Van Zyl what the future of our world might likely soon look like in the era of the fourth industrial re- revolution driven by big data and artificial intelligence. And on, on science, we learned of a disorder called polyductile, a condition where babies born with an extra finger or toe are able to perform more on a functional level level than uh, you and I with only 10 fingers or toes and then in our final story we discovered what is cooking at the Links research laboratory and studio where postponed business solutions are being developed and its scientists are rethinking how big data and advanced analytics impact on operational processes in various organizations but that is where we leave it for this week a big thank you to all of our guests who are featured on tonight's show including Professor Terence Fanzar and Pumlani Ntlangani Sokoza. Our team behind the scenes is production by Masibulele Lunika, Masichaba Kanyapa and tech by Kutwano Sirame. You can find this week's show on podcastjournalism.co.za forward slash science and um the Science Inside is produced by the Vids Radio Academy funded in part by the South African Department of Science and Technology. Good night. The Science Inside Podcast.